Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 181. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. St. Paul Street Evangelation Apostolate produces a lot more than ways of evangelizing souls. It's also produced real men like Brian Wilson and Bob Lee. This week they show us genuine masculinity from an evangelist perspective. If you want a life of total freedom, and I mean total freedom, to go where you want, live where you want without money worries, there's one skill that can give it to you. It's a skill so desired, so in demand, you could have an endless flow of money coming into your bank account every month and never leave your house. What kind of money am I talking about? Does six figures sound good to you? That's what some people who've discovered and mastered this skill are making without breaking a sweat. As for learning this skill, almost anybody can do it. It's a special kind of skill that once you've mastered it, it gives you the opportunity not only to earn as much money as you need, but from anywhere in the world for the rest of your life. I'll be brutally honest. There's simply no other way to gain total freedom and independence than learning a skill that rewards you tenfold. Just click the link in my show notes that says, here's your ticket to the good life to learn all about it. We had Bob Wilson and Brian Lee on the show before in episode 116. When they were on then, they talked about evangelization. In this fourth episode of Toxic Male Month, the guys are going to be speaking about genuine masculinity from a Catholic perspective. Due to its length, I'm not going to make comments after the interview so I can get the Catholic boot camp in this week. So let's listen. 
We have Bob Wilson and Brian Lee on the show today again from St. Paul Street Evangelization. How are you guys doing today? I'm good, Joe. Thanks for having us. Okay, that was Bob Wilson. Brian, let's hear your voice so the people can distinguish them. Hey, Joe, doing great. How are you? Oh, I'm just as happy as a tornado in a trailer park, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, let's dive right in. Uh, The left calls us toxic males when we attempt to be masculine, as God made us. Define strong Catholic masculinity as you understand it, and tell us why the left is wrong to criticize us for it. Either one of you, both of you, in fact. Yeah, Joe, I think uh, a strong Catholic man is self-disciplined. He has control of his passions. He doesn't use people, right? And he's always looking out for the their greater good. And he's fully free to do this when he's not a slave to sin. He provides, he protects, and he disciplines, um, right, in the, in the family. And, of course, he needs God's grace to do any of this. Um, yeah, and I try and, you know, stay out of politics. A few years ago when I was into it, I got, you know, I, I alienated some friends. And I realized it wasn't worth it. So now I just stick to promoting Jesus as opposed to promoting a candidate or tearing down a candidate. But having said that, folks on the left, you know, they uh, they seem to promote a lot of things that God hates, like sexual sin and the idea that there's no difference between men and women. Yeah, brother, I'll tell you, I frankly, I don't see where we can separate religion from politics anymore in this country. Right. But, well, you know, I'll tell you. You know, there's a lot of politicians out there that, you know, they they talk a good game, but I'm not sure if I can trust them. I know I can trust Jesus, so I'm just going to stick to what I know, right? <laughs> Absolutely. How about you, Brian? Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because we live in this culture now that's so in, uh, immersed in gender identity and, you know, so not you, there's this political game of trying to, to redefine gender. And I think uh, it's interesting when you say the left causes toxic males for wanting to reclaim what uh, authentic masculinity and femininity. And it really is, you know, uh, an attack against the church when the church wants to promote the truth of saying that we are not able to define for ourselves who we are, you know, uh, and that's actually the beauty of faith. The reason we even seek faith out at all is because, because we don't know who we are. We want to understand the world, how it is. And so to be able to, um, not just say, Hey, faith is this, you know, this, you just need to be morally disciplined and do these things, uh, in order for you to earn heaven. It's like, that's the opposite of what faith is. Faith is saying, I'm looking at the beauty of creation, the beauty of life, the beauty of this world. And I want to know the who that's behind all of it. And then we do, we say, we define, Oh, that's Christ. And, and like now I'm not subject to saying, I'm going to define who for myself who I am. I'm going to allow Christ, Christ to reveal to me what it means to be a man and Christ to reveal to the church, what it means to be an authentic mass, a man, an authentic woman. And, uh, and, and then we allow ourselves to, to lead that life and to not be influenced by everything the culture is saying is that you're going to be authentically who you are when you live out your desires. That is the absolute opposite of Christianity. Your desires do not find, define who you are. In fact, we believe our desires are going to lead us <laughs> it to uh hell you know if we if we allow our desires to be god and not allow christ to reveal to us the path that we're meant to walk um we it's it, the entire point of authentic masculinity and femininity is of saying i'm going to allow uh christ and his teachings to be able to lead me and not and not my desires and i'm not going to define myself who i am i'm going to be defined uh in my baptism now as a son or daughter of god and so specifically with this being the uh, Catholic masculinity in this month that we're promoting. Uh, what does it mean to be a man? You just have to look at what Christ did when he was here. You know, what, how, how is it that he lived? What is it, especially, you know, as he went to his death, um, and wanting to, to die, not simply, uh, because so, so that way we can see that we, we also need to follow that path. We need to learn how to die to our desires to be able to live for God's greater, uh, glory. And that's, um, by through that, by doing that, we're also going to be raised with him into heaven. So, uh, the, it is so unfortunate that we live in a time where, 
uh, authentic masculinity and femininity, especially as the church defines it, is under fire. And we just we need to go out and to not be afraid to promote the truth of why we want to choose to live this way. It's not because we just want to admonish, uh, you know, other people, but it's because we really believe that we found something great. And by living this way, it's actually going to lead to, to true happiness and true fulfillment. Yeah. You know, I think both of you were spot on in the things you said. Bob mentioned being a slave to sin. You know, Gay Pride Month is June. That's why we chose June to be Toxic Male Month. And the church dedicates June to the Sacred Heart. Uh, I think it needs to be noted that, you know, we talk about being masculine like Christ, and modern Christianity, both Catholic and Protestant, have turned him into some kind of a warm fuzzy, uh, just syrupy, sweet, nice. He wasn't nice. <laughs> he was honest. He, he, call, he publicly called men liars and hypocrites. You know, he, he chased people out of the temple with a whip for crying out loud. That's not nice, and it's not namby-pamby, milk-toast, warm-fuzzy stuff. <laughs> and Catholic men need to understand that that Jesus is the real Jesus, and that's why we copy Christ in our masculinity, or we should. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes, you know, the worst sin isn't to offend someone. The worst sin is to say, stay silent in the face Amen. of sin. That's the worst sin. If you stay silent, you know, you're out there at best pleasing men instead of God. And that's not going to end up well for anyone. And really, you're, you're kind of, uh, you're complicit in the sin if you don't say anything about it. That's and true. I think bringing this into context, especially with us as an apostolate for evangelization, uh, one of the things every time I give a training is saying, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna equip you to be able to do street evangelization." And I throw up a picture of people having signs that say, "You know, you're going to go to hell." And um, you know, normal like when you think of street evangelization, you you think is sometimes people just like yelling at others, you know, telling them that they're sinners. And that they're going to hell. But what we have found in our apostolate is that, you know, just yelling at the average person walking by on the street who probably has, hasn't been in church is likely an atheist and telling them that they're a sinner and going to hell isn't actually going to lead to their conversion. I haven't heard of one. No. I can't, I can't, I don't know of one single story. So especially when we talk about admonishment. And uh, even looking at what Jesus said, there is a way that he treated sinners that was different than the way that he treated the Pharisees and those who were in the church. And he admonished those who were in the church, especially those who found themselves prideful because they were living by the law without realizing that the law was, you know, a template for something greater in terms of, um, you know, uh, seeking out the, to, uh, God's mercy that we weren't. Um, defined uh, as good or bad by living by the law, but the law was there. So great God's grace, we would seek it. So they were saying, I'm, uh, it, so if, if someone was living saying, I'm good because I'm living by the law, uh, it's, it's like you're, you're missing out. You're good because you've received God's grace and the law is there so that we can be able to see it. And like, I'm, if I'm not even living at the minimum standards of the law, how much it, am I fall far behind from living by the standard of love, which is complete self-sacrifice and self-giving of ourselves for the Lord. And, uh, so when, just when you talk about admonishment, I'm thinking specifically of the woman at the well and the way that he treated her. That's what I was thinking. Yes. And so for him to be able to go to her to say, I recognize who you are. I know who you are. And that doesn't matter. That's not going to, what's going to separate you from me. And then she goes and she becomes a great evangelizer for the whole city of Samaria. Uh, um, and for, uh, you know, and then he, with, with the Pharisees, the way that he was, again, like, you know, continuing to admonish them, he did that out of love for them. So that way they would see God's grace too. So they wouldn't stop believing that they didn't need God's grace anymore because they were living by the law. So that, I think that's that's a difference, especially as Christian brothers. Uh, for those who are actually in church, for men who actually might be seeking out community in some men's groups, and you actually see that they might be living in a way that's not in accordance with the gospel, not in accordance of the way that Christ is calling us to, I think it's very much fair game for us to pull them aside and say, uh, you know, to let them know 
that maybe there is something in their life that you see that may need to change or you want to talk to them about it. And you can do that in private as Christ tells us to. Uh, but for the general public, when we go out there, we can also, it's, it's not a bad thing to try to approach when, um, then the average person like Jesus did at the woman at the well. And it doesn't make us uh, less effective because we're not admonishing someone off the spot. Uh, but we're, we want to do everything in the light of bringing people to Christ. And so sometimes being less harsh at the beginning to introduce them to Christ first before we admonish them seems to be uh, the way Christ did it. And I think the way that he set the template for us to do it today as well. Yeah, I agree with you, Brian, because Catholics who are misbehaving and bad bishops and priests, they need to be called out. But, you know, I've, I personally made over 200 converts over the years. I've certainly never done it by saying, Hey, you're going to hell. (laughs) (laughs) So you go to people where they are mentally, spiritually, and bring them up from there. You just reach down to their level and bring them up from there. And I believe that's the philosophy of uh, the St. Paul Street evangelization, correct? Correct, absolutely. It is. There's two ways to admonish a sinner. One's with a wagging finger, and the other one's with your hand on around their back, you know? And gent- doing it gently and saying, hey, man, I love you, and this is hurting you, and this is what you want to do, and this is going to make you happier and, and, and better off. Amen. Speaking of St. Paul... And the uh, saint you seem to represent with the apostolate, something we don't hear anymore is the admonishment of Paul to men in Ephesians 5 and 6. Why do you think that is? That's a great question. I answered it just a little bit previously, just sharing that, especially when Paul is writing the Ephesians, Paul was with the Ephesians for two years, you know, trying to show them the way to be able to live the Christian life. And then as he leaves and he starts hearing about the way they're living again, he writes back saying, (laughs) admonishing them, because these are people within the church who are not no longer living in accordance of the way that he shared with them how to live the gospel, not just in writing, but actually living with them, you know, so setting up that community with the Ephesians. So when he's writing them, it's coming from a place of a person who they know uh, they they respect and Paul loves them and he's actually trying to get them back on the path uh, to living an authentic Christian life where it seems like they have fallen away. So that admonishment was should have been hope, well received by the Ephesians, understanding that like okay he's right he's calling us out. Um, so to see it in that context is again not the average person who probably doesn't know Christ walking the streets, but uh, these people who are in the church and maybe now even. Uh, you know, living or promoting a way of life that's directly contrary to the gospel, Paul wants to write to them to let them know that that is not okay. Uh, but when we talk about admonishment, I'm thinking of a story as well that uh, is fun. Like whenever I I do give talks and talk to people specifically about this topic, I remember the Steve Dawson who founded the Apostolate. He was actually at a conference, um, a Catholic conference, just a few years ago, not that long ago, and there was a young man that he ran into. And he was just a person who happened to be nearby. I don't think he was actually attending the conference for any specific reason. Um, but uh, Steve ran into him. And uh, just like he always does, he offered them a miraculous medal or a rosary. And then just talking to this young man about his faith. And uh, the, the he revealed um, that he actually gr- had grown up Catholic, but was no longer practicing his faith. He was now living uh, with a girl that he was dating. And, um, you know, Steve, the, the way that Steve admonished him was actually asking him, saying, if you continue to live that, the way that you're living, you know, where do you think it's going to happen when, when you die? Or what do you, and, the, and the young man said, I'll probably go to hell. And Steve said, does that concern you? You know, so Steve wasn't saying he, the way he admonished him was not be saying, hey, brother, I don't want to let you know that you're going to go to hell if you keep living this way. He allowed the man to be able to say for himself like that he he knew that he was walking and going down a path that was away from God. And when he when Steve asked him if that concerned him, he said, yeah, maybe it does. And and once you get to that point where it actually does concern you that you can have you know eternal separation from God which is what we're what we're made for what's actually going to make us happy what salvation is really about then that's <laughs> it, it changes everything and so it's like help let's help you get back on the path this is what you need to do so um allowing people in the midst of the conversation to almost admonish themselves 
in uh, to the point where they might be seeking help or guidance on how to be able to begin living a life of faith again. And of course, it doesn't always work out like that. And if Steve did say, if the young man said, yeah, I think I'm going to heaven, Steve could probably could have came in and said, well, that's, I, I just want, as a, as a, your brother in Christ, I want to let you know like that that's not the case. You know, if you keep living this way, it actually isn't going to lead to, to God. You're, you're following the Lord, the God of your desires, not the God of Israel, not, not Jesus Christ. So, uh, that's the way that you could also deal with it if you're trying to allow someone to admonish themselves, but for some reason they, they actually truly do think they're living in the light and you can uh, uh, let them know in, in a brotherly way that maybe they are living in darkness. And if they actually want to live in the light, if they want to be in heaven with Christ, that they're going to need a change. Amen. You have anything to add to that, Bob? No, I think, it, well, yeah, I think it's a big problem in the Catholic world right now. You know, last time I checked admonishing the sinner it it is still a work of mercy right amen but everyone is so sensitive right now right and folks don't want to have to deal with having someone get upset with them and so what do we do oftentimes we just stay silent and pray you know maybe someone will come along and talk to them but we have to speak out against sin because you know it sends people to hell and it makes our world rotten frankly and what god say he said his people are destroyed for lack of knowledge and so like i said before there's a way to do it There's a right way and a wrong way. The right way is with your hand around their back, and so they know that you care. And then the wrong way is with the uh, wagging finger. But we do need to man up a little bit and say what needs to be said. Maybe take a little abuse. You know, remember what Jesus said. He said, blessed are you when folks revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, he said, for your reward is great in heaven. Right? And for in the same way they persecuted the prophets, they're going to, they're going to persecute you. And so that's what I'm going for, heaven and its rewards. And if I got to endure a little abuse and pain to make God proud of me, that's fine. I'll take it. Yeah, I'm I, I'm very much accustomed to the uh, abuse and pain. <laughs> that's, that's all I've had since I became a Catholic and began evangelizing people. I And I evangelized where I converted for... Oh, I don't know, 24, 25 years in Alabama. We are not exactly a big thing in Alabama. And, you know, with a lot of fundamentalists down there who are vehemently anti-Catholic. So if you're going to try to do something for the church there, you're going to be in trouble. But, you know, pain and suffering in this, doing the hard thing, is part of it. Sure. Jesus told us, that we have two primary responsibilities. Every other responsibility we have as a Catholic falls under these two, and that's to become a saint and to save souls, pure and simple. And if you aren't trying to do both, you might find yourself in a very difficult situation at your judgment. That's right. Matthew 6.33, first seek the kingdom, and then worry about these other things. And actually, he said, if you worry about the kingdom first, he'll give you these other things. Just We just got to get our priorities straight. That's true. Yeah. That's true. And what do you guys think about uh, the men listening to this interview, meditating on Ephesians 5 and 6, and so they can reclaim their proper roles as fathers, husbands, and leaders in the church? Well, Paul teaches us an, an analogy in Ephesians 5 where the the husband represents Christ, and the wife represents the church. Amen. So the husband is supposed to, you know, love his wife truly, be completely faithful, and to lay down his life for her. Amen. And if we love our love, if we love our wives like that, they'll want to submit to us, right? Just like all of us want to submit to Jesus for what He's done for us. You know, if we love Him with that love, that sacrificial love, it, they would love to, you know, submit. And it's important to underline the equal dignity, of course, and responsibility of men and women. So in order for marriages to work well, husband and wife, they have to love each other selflessly. And then they both have to do the same for the children that God blesses them with. And so we need to stress that men need to lead the way. And that's really important for the kids to see so that they can know how it's supposed to be. And if the dad isn't a faithful Catholic, the kids are less likely to be, regardless of how pious mom is. So it's part of God's plan that men lead the family. And if we shriek away from that and leave it up to mom, 
our own our own soul is in jeopardy. Yeah, men. Yeah, if you feel like men, if you feel like you're lacking in this area, you just have to recognize that this is the way to go, and just pray to Saint Joseph to help you, as well as I would recommend praying the daily rosary and asking God to to make you like Saint Joseph. In other words, man up and be a man. <laughs> yeah, I could have said it in five words. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Brian? Yeah, I just. I, Second, what Bob said, you know, it's it's important for the man when you talk about the proper role of father and husband and leader, uh, a man who's going to be willing to lay down his life for his family, specifically his bride, the church. I mean, that when you talk that that's what the role is going to be is like a, a, a sacrificial. And as a man who is now three years married, I'm I, I, it, this isn't this is something that I'm learning how to do every day. And so one of the things that's important, especially when you're a man in in marriage uh, is, um, the homily that uh, one of my really good friends, cause I used to be in seminary, his name, father, father Branson hip, uh, his message to me was like recognizing now that you are in a school of love. So you're not going to be perfect at love right, right now. And, and, and in this instance, you're probably pretty bad at it because you're just now getting married. But now once you're married, you're entering in a school and you need to have grace for yourself and you, you're, you know, the wife needs to have grace for the husband. The husband needs to have grace for the wife because these words in terms of just saying it, how to lay down your life uh, for the other every single day, it, it can become uh, you, you, uh, you can find yourself thinking back to times when you didn't have to sacrifice and th- you can find yourself in a, in a really bad place when things may get hard in marriage of thinking, man, like it was much easier when um or for some reason, I felt like I was a much better person before I was married. And uh, one of the uh, another really good piece of advice is uh, besides just giving yourself grace, recognizing you're in a school and you're going to learn how to be able to lay down your life every day, and hopefully you give each other grace. But um, one of the things that I think is also important that that was revealed to me is because uh, sometimes when someone becomes so close to you, uh, just just as Jesus wants to be close close to us, once we let Him in. And some of the messiness that's in our lives, we can we can have this tendency to want to push them away. And so, uh, especially when a wife has now become a part of you, you can, there can be some real messiness that is not only revealed to her, but it's becoming revealed to you. Maybe how much how not good at laying down your own life uh, you are to doing it with another person. And the way I've, it's been described to me is maybe there's like a, a cup. And, um, maybe it's, it's full, uh, and, but you don't even recognize it until someone tips it and it spills over. Uh, and so you can find yourself being less patient, more angry or something like that. Now that somebody is, uh, you know, really close to you, maybe there's this stuff that needed to be dealt with and you didn't even realize it needed to be dealt with until you became a married man. Uh, and so the way that you need to deal with it as a husband is to not push your wife away, to not push Christ away. But you need to ask yourself as a man every single day, how is it that I can allow Christ's grace to continue to lead me? So that way I don't get angry at those who are pushing this cup, but to allow this, this sin, this selfishness that's still there, that's still in me. I need him. I need Christ to help me let this die. <laughs> because if I don't, I, it's gonna, I, and if I, you know, push others away instead of dealing with this, that's now been revealed. I'm, I'm not going to be a good husband and good father for it. Uh, and so I would just remember even just, you know, speaking personally, there were times when I would get, you know, angry with my wife at the beginning of our marriage. And I just found myself, I was like, man, I don't remember being this angry all the time. Or I don't remember, <laughs> we never fought this much. But now that we're married and that analogy was brought forward to me, it's like, I need to learn how to be a man and to not push my wife away, to not put the blame on her, but to say, like, I need to allow this to be a moment where I die to myself. Um, and, Amen. and allow Christ to be the one who, you know, is able to continue to make me new that I'm in a school and I'm going to give myself grace and hopefully your wife can give you grace as a man too. But, um, it's these, these words of saying, I'm going to die and lay myself, uh, you know, lay my life down for my wife and my kids. And it's, it's something, um, that we can know and knowledge, but it takes years <laughs> and a lot of grace to put it into practice. Yeah, it does. You know, uh, I had very much the same problem early in my marriage. I was getting angry all the time. That wasn't her fault. That was mine. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> because no one can make me angry. Only I can consent to anger. So, and I think Paul was, uh, I think the most important thing he was pointing out 
to husbands is the sacrificial element. Uh, we absolutely have to be willing to sacrifice even our very lives for our wives and for our children. <laughs> and that's not always an easy thing for a person to do, especially in a culture and society that's all about me, you know. Okay, yeah, guys, guys, go ahead. It's part of uh, our wounded human nature. That's what we inherited. Instead of being selfless, we're selfish. And, you know, it takes grace and it takes time and it takes confession <laughs> to get yeah. back to where we need to be. <laughs> yeah, concupiscence is a pain in the neck. Right. <laughs> Fellas, let's shift gears here with one really short and easy question. Has the church and her leadership in America become effeminate? <laughs> Take it away, Brian. <laughs> I just love the preface of that question. You know, you know what? Um, I want to say I want to start actually by before I give the short and easy answer is that I have a lot of hope for the church actually being a man in seminary and just knowing that they're the leadership of the church that we have in, in, in the church's heart, which is sometimes in in. in where we have these young men now that are in the hearts of the formation of the church. I don't think it's raising effeminate priests, especially these new priests that are, are now, that are now um, coming into dioceses. Uh, these seminaries are, are these, these men that are in seminaries now are so strong uh, in their faith. And they understand that uh, they want to be able to be men that lay down their life for the church and they're ready to do it. And so I know I became changed through that formation and I have a lot of hope that even if there are, you know, bishops and priests now, it's hard to say the church and all of her leadership, everyone has become effeminate. There might be specific instances especially where you're saying, like, we don't need we don't need a church who just goes along with the culture. We need a church that we that says mercy is not just saying everything is good, you know, uh, and wanting to just agree. So that way, you know, people are are you know, maybe upset or feel pushed away by the church. We need to be, we can be strong in our teaching. We can be strong in saying and what we believe and continue to point people to Christ. And we can do that in a way that doesn't make us uh, seem like we're, we're bullies, but we're actually promoting a good. We're promoting um, Christ himself and doing anything less is not doing a service to anybody. So whenever there is an instance where a church leader seems to give lenience on a teaching that goes contrary to, to living a life in Christ, um, that that is not good. But I can also say that when we just, I don't want to give a broad spectrum that all church leadership and all any anyone who, you know, is, is in the church has, is becoming more effeminate because I do think there can be also counter strong examples uh, that I know personally that who are, you know, promoting and living an, an authentic faith and doing it and doing it in a way that actually it becomes attractive and not detractive. Bob, anything to add to that? Um, I think it's hard to deny. It seems like um, some of the older priests who get a lot of uh, publicity on social media. There's like like Father James. You know, there's some of, some of these guys that are off the rails that get a lot of press. But I was invited. St. Paul Street Evangelization has been invited to work with seminarians, and the guys that I've worked with, you know, they invited us there, so they they can't be too. Too bad, right? And so the guys we worked with, you know, we we get in there and we challenge them with the tough questions. We do role plays and talk about these tough topics, and they handle them well. They don't shy away from it and say, "Oh well, you know, love is love" and stuff like that. They handle these questions well, right? And so, like, I want to echo what Brian said. I think the future is bright. The younger guys coming up, right? For so thirty years, twenty, forty, fifty, sixty years, it's been pretty bad. But I I'm, I have hope for the future. Well, yeah, I. I agree with you about the young men who are trying to enter seminary now, although <laughs> although in many cases they can't. There are a lot of poor guys that never get an opportunity to exercise their call to ministry. Sure. But you know, there's absolutely no doubt that the Lavender Mafia now controls the majority in the USCCB. And these bishops, while they have authority, they seem to forget that as bishops, they serve us, the mystical body of Christ. Now, what do you think Catholic men should do to wrestle control away from the Lavender Mafia and help support the good bishops? Yeah, I think they should work on um, what they can tr control, right? Look in the mirror first, ask themselves, 
how can they be more like Jesus, more like St. Joseph? And then they need to make use of the sacraments and strive to be great men and then encourage the other men in their life to do the same. If we do that, we can, you know, turn things around. There are way more lay Catholic men than there are corrupt clergy. (laughs) So we can swallow them up and overwhelm (laughs) them if we all take it upon ourselves to be great men who speak the truth, speak it out in charity and clarity, and get out in the public square and do the same thing. We'll win if we do that. And be unafraid to do so. That's That's, right. That's the biggest thing that I see is that everybody's afraid of being canceled or criticized or oppressed in some way. That's right. Cancel me, and if you get canceled, you're going to get a higher degree of glory in heaven. So let's work on our eternal 401k, huh? (laughs) <laughs> I like that. Brian, what about you? Yeah, I was just thinking about the gospel of, you know, don't don't sit there and worry about the speck in your brother's eye when you, you know, have a beam in your own eye. And I, I don't think that means we can't speak out in public or, you know, or especially in private. Day. And any way that if there's somebody who's promoting a teachings that are going to lead the church away from Christ, that needs to be called out in any way that's uh, that's possible. And so, you know, if anyone who's part of some sort of leadership that's going to be leading people away from Christ. We need to continue to seek ways to be able to not allow them to, to have a authority where they're leading other people astray. So we can still work towards that as a layman. I've, I do feel like it's a little bit out of my control, but what isn't in my control is to not allow say, because of, because of what these people are doing, it's going to affect what Bob was saying. My own, not, I, it's not hindering my own ability to be able to live for Christ. So I need to, to know what it is that I can control. And just what, as you said, Joe, at the beginning of this, that um, no, uh, nobody can take away the, the desire and knowing what I need to do to become a saint in heaven. And so if I need to be striving for that. And hopefully other people around me will be able to see that and, and want to live by that example and if there are instances or opportunities where uh, we can we can call out and speak up the truth, especially to those who within the church are promoting something contrary uh, to how we're called to live, then we, then we should do that. Take that opportunity when we get the chance. But I'm, I also don't want to lay down and say it's because of them that, you know, we, we don't have the opportunity to be saints anymore. That would be untrue. Um, so we need to call out anybody who's who is saying something contrary, but not be in despair that we can no longer be saints because of it. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. The, uh, because one of our, again, one of our two primary responsibilities is to become a saint. Most of us probably won't make that level by the time we die, but that's why we have a safety net called purgatory. And if you spend your life, spend your Catholic life with your foot all the way to the spiritual floorboard, that's at least what you can hope for. Of course, if all you're trying for is purgatory, you're very likely to not make it at all. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Shoot for heaven, and if you fall a little short, you you make purgatory. If you shoot <laughs> for purgatory and fall a little short, not good. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. You guys are in an apostolate where this is really important, so... Are there any books or talks you can suggest to help modern Catholic men better understand their proper roles in the church, their families, and society? I have a a guy on YouTube. Sorry, Brian. Mm -hmm. Um, I really like. He's very. um, He gives it straight. He's got. He's got this like New Yorker kind of accent. Father Isaac Mary Relia. It's R E L Y E A. Search him out on YouTube, and he'll give you a good talking to. I, I recommend him. Okay, how about you, Brian? Yeah, I, I think John Paul II did a great job uh, of being able to lay out in his work love and responsibility uh, about what it meant to be uh, authentic, authentically masculine and feminine, especially in light of love and marriage. And sometimes, uh, I mean, it is a highly theological book. John Paul II is not the easiest uh, pope to read. So I think Dr. Edward Sree did a great job in his book called Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love. And what I really like about it is you were, I know this is authentic masculine month and this is, this book is in particular lays out the roles for both men and women. So I think it's actually, if you are married or, or dating somebody seriously, I think it's a great book to be able to read together. So that way you can be able to see, we talk, we've, we've talked about in this podcast, you know, living, living in, in, uh, 
like what does it mean to be an authentic man and woman? And so to be able to go through this book uh, with your spouse or with somebody that you're seriously courting uh, is only going to be able to help your relationship. Um, so I, I really, I highly recommend that book. That's that's good. I'm in fact, you've uh, kind of piqued my interest on it. That <laughs> fact, the uh, the priest that Bob suggested too. I'm hey, listen, why don't you shoot me a link on that later on so I can put it in the show notes about that priest? Both of them, in fact. Mm-hmm. Sure. Can you guys do that? Okay. Yeah, no problem. We've talked about what to do in the church, but what would you suggest Catholic men do to combat the social culture that tries to humiliate and attack us as men? Well, in in Acts 5, what did the apostles do when they were flogged in order not to speak in the name of Jesus? They rejoiced, right? That, That they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. It sounds like they listened to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where Jesus said, blessed are you and folks revile you and persecute you and utter utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So bring it on. (laughs) Absolutely. Brian? Speaking on a personal level, I know I need good brothers around me uh, because I can. if I'm isolated, I think the culture just continues to, to feed us the false idea of what it means to be a man. You have, you know, so many TV shows of just men, you know, laying at home, like laying on the couch at home or drinking or, you know, not taking care of their kids, not, you know, actually laying down their life for uh, their spouse. There's, there's, there's not a lot of good examples. If you're trying to live it in isolation, it's going to be more difficult. Uh, so to be able to find a great community, uh, in your parish or in your town, uh, I know it's important. It's every, every town that I go to, I try to seek out brothers in Christ who are also trying to live their faith. And we try to get together regularly because I need it. Uh, so, um, I don't where whoever, whatever man is listening to this, if they're not already part of a group uh, of men who are going to challenge them, where they can actually be in a place uh, where they can share both the the, the blessings and the struggles uh, of you know of living life, um, then it's going to be more difficult for them. So, uh, and especially the, the the culture that tries to humiliate and attack us. If you're part of a strong brotherhood, it's not going to mean very much to you. But if you're in isolation, um, I think you're 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 laying yourself out to be more susceptible uh, to you know not. Uh, being a, a strong man, um, and I feel like you're the devil has will have more opportunity to get to you in isolation than in community. You know, I I belong to Knights of Columbus, as I'm sure you probably do. Mm-hmm. But the Knights are no longer an organization where you can count on strong Catholic masculinity, not because they don't want to be men because they don't know the faith and they're just like not at least 95% of all Catholics. They don't know the faith and you can't live what you don't know. But you know, ever since I heard about the St. Paul street evangelization apostolate, I have always thought that each you, you call them chapters, right? Aren't they chapters? Yeah. Chapters or teams. Yeah, teams, teams. That was the word I was looking for. I've always felt like a St. Paul street evangelization team would be a great place for men to actually support one another in being real men. I've always believed that. I I have been so impressed with St. Paul Street Evangelization from the very beginning. I have tried and tried and tried to get some men to uh, uh, start a team locally here. Unfortunately, because I've had a stroke, I can't get out and do it. But I just can't seem to get anybody uh, off their duff. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard. It's like, it's, it's the culture we live in, you know, men are not men. It's like, we're like, I don't want to do that. It's, it's hard. What they they will find out is it's not really that hard. They think it's hard. They think they're going to go out there and uh, there's going to get, they're going to be in fights. People are going to yell at them. But the way we do it is very inviting. It's very friendly. We're joyful. And 
there's only one way, you know, the proof is in the pudding. So I don't know how to get them out there. A little fear of the hell, little fear of hell, maybe a little fear of the Lord. We have to instill in them, but they got to try it. I mean, the catechism 1816 says our salvation pretty much depends on sharing our faith. Yeah. And this is the easiest way to do it. You know, you, you're, you're going to be talking to strangers you probably never see again. <laughs> yeah. And this absolutely. Is gonna, and you this know, is gonna, <laughs> it's going to help you to. It's okay. And it's going to help you to evangelize the people you care about most. And so this is a way to get your feet wet, get some experience. And there's no, really no excuse not to, not to, not to do it. Yeah, you're right. It's not hard. I know that from 30 plus years of experience myself. But what's really hard is finding out that you're going to end up in hell because you didn't try. Exactly. You know, Every Catholic man can spend his life trying to evangelize, trying to share the faith, and never make a single convert. And they might end up feeling like a failure, but you know what? They didn't fail because conversion is between the person who needs to convert and God. It has nothing to do with you. You're just a conduit. That's all you are. And so, guys out there listening, you don't need to worry about making converts and whether you're equipped to. You just need to try. You just need to try. Because, you know what? I learned early on, when I was still a neophyte, I got a lot of things wrong. I mean, I got a lot of things wrong whenever I was trying to evangelize. But I was still able to make converts. You know why? I was excited. Mm -hmm. Excitement goes a long way. God uses that excitement because it's a little bit hard to make people want to take a look at something seriously if you're not excited about it. Mm -hmm. And how do you get excited about it? Study. Learn. Apply what you learn. Mm -hmm. You know, Catholicism to me is the most exciting lived experience I can imagine. I've been I've been all over the world. I've served my country. I've done a lot of things I won't even bother to talk about. Most of them were evil because uh before I became a Catholic. But I've seen so much and everything everything pales in comparison to a lived Catholic faith. It just really does. You guys are both uh, cradle Catholics, right? Yeah. Yes. Cradle Catholic, then fell away, and then came back. Yeah, and so revert is, yeah, yeah. I think that's great. Actually, I have more respect for reverts than I do converts. It's new to us, old to you. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I like what you said there, Joe. I mean, an evangelist, a lot of times when we hear conversion stories, there's all these things happening in people's lives. In a street evangelization, say it takes like 10 links in a chain of conversion. A lot of times the street evangelists is just one of those links, right? Right. God can be working on them like for five years before them, then we can come in and then five years after them. And then we might not see converts, but that's, that's not our, our business. Right. Our job is to go out there, be faithful. We're going to be a link in the chain. And God's going to, and at the end of time, when we do the, the general judgment, we're going to see all the people that we help become Catholic. And then it's going to be glorious. Yeah. So absolutely. I like what you said. We're just, we're just conduits and you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, Bob. Listen, guys, we're running kind of a hot clock. I appreciate the time that you've given me today, and I know the listeners appreciate it. In closing, is there anything on your mind that you want to say to the Catholic men listening? Neither one. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I think one of the things that has been on my heart lately is is even this topic of of salvation, and we talked about getting to heaven and I think it's important to realize that getting to heaven is just going to be a fruition of having direct relationship with Christ. So right now we have, it's something that we can have now through the sacraments and through the church. And it's something that we're striving for, for heaven. 
And so, especially when you're thinking about evangelization and people going to heaven and hell, uh, you have to realize that people who don't want a relationship with God, you know, why would, why would, it would almost be hell for them to be, uh, you know, at bend a knee in heaven for all eternity, worshiping and loving God and living in communion with each other. Like that, that, that's something that they wouldn't even want. So as a man, I think it's important for us to say, what is it that I want, you know, first in my life and how is it can I focus all my efforts on living heaven as much as I can now through scripture, through the sacraments, through learning how to do it practically in your, as a husband um, or, uh, you know, whatever role you have as a, as a priest, as a father, whatever your, your role is to be able to live out that vocation well. Uh, because we're just going to, it's all a foretaste for what, what we get to experience for all eternity. So just to continue to live what, as Bob said, in, in light of eternity, and you're going to be fine. Anything to add, Bob? Yeah, I would say that all the grace that comes to our world comes to us through the Catholic Church. And if we're not as holy as we used to be, then we shouldn't be surprised at seeing all the disasters we're seeing. And it's up to us to turn it around. Amen. It's up to us Catholic men, and we can do it. St. Paul Street Evangelization can help you to do it. We can teach you what you need to know in order to be an effective, fruitful evangelist. So check us out, and we'll work with you, and you'll be glad you did. Amen. You know, guys, I think you men have really talked to the issue of masculinity here, true masculinity. It's not some machismo thing. It's a blueprint. Christ is our blueprint. You guys have done a great job here today. I really appreciate you being on the show, and I'm looking forward to us being back together again. What do you say? Sounds good, Joe. Amen to that, Joe, and we appreciate your uh, masculinity as well, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. God love you, brothers. We'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. This is for six-pack warriors who are interested in learning to make money online. Earlier this year, ClickBank made a shocking announcement. In a mere 12 months, a small group of ClickBank users made a total of $25,690,213. But here's where it gets crazier. None of them were online business experts. In fact, before that 12 months, they were just regular ClickBank users who'd never made a dime online. Many of them had day jobs or other commitments and just did ClickBank on the side. But there's one thing they all had in common. All of them used my friend Robbie Blanchard's simple three-step system to succeed. Now, in case you haven't heard of him, Robbie Blanchard is the number one ClickBank affiliate. Due to all the success he's had from promoting ClickBank products for high commission, Robbie's put together a free training where you'll learn the same system he used to have such massive success. In this training, Robbie will show you how to make $1,000 a day promoting informative products that people are dying to use, how to use the power of Facebook to find huge pockets of untapped buyers, Why making $1,000 a day is actually easy to do and just takes three steps. Why you need zero experience to have success with this system. You're not going to want to miss this free training if you're looking to generate $1,000 a day. Click the link in my show notes that says how to make $1,000 a day with ClickBank offers for the free training. but I am fair. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. We've all heard of Our Lady of Fatima, but it seems few actually know the story of her appearances at Fatima, Portugal in 1917. It's not possible to do the story justice on the limited time I have here, but I'd still like to give you as much of the story as I can for your edification. 
three shepherd children, Lucia Santos and her cousins Francesco and Jacinta Marto, were chosen by Our Lady for the privilege of visits from heaven. She appeared to the children once a month in the Covidae area on the 13th day of each month from May through October. The first apparition was just before the children, but as word got out across the countryside, people came from all over to see the children being visited. Many of the people came because they were seeking miracles for themselves or loved ones, especially healing miracles. Others came to scoff at the children and the superstition of the parents. A great deal happened during the course of those six months, but the highlight of the apparitions occurred on October 13th with what has become known as the miracle of the sun. Her message was so important to mankind that heaven was pleased to grant this most extraordinary miracle to defeat our cynicism and pay attention to the message. The miracle of the sun was the only miracle in all of human history where the exact date, time, and place of its occurrence were announced in advance. But before I tell you about the miracle, there are a few things of historical significance I'd like to mention that deal directly with Our Lady's message. As Our Lady appeared to the children, World War I was raging across Europe. Our Lady told the children the war would end soon, but if the world didn't heed to her message, return to her son and do penance for themselves and the sins of the world, a worse and greater war would plague the world as a punishment for our sinfulness. She said the sign that the next war was about to begin would be a great light in the sky. On January 28, 1938, there was a great aurora borealis seen over every nation involved in World War II. The great light was called an aurora borealis, but many scientists admitted they called the light an aurora because they didn't know what else to call it, because it didn't really meet the criteria for an aurora. Fifty-six days later, Hitler marched on Austria to mark the beginning of the Second World War in Europe. Our Lady also told the children, I shall come to ask for the consecration of Russia to my Immaculate Heart and the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. If my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the church. The mention of Russia spreading her heirs throughout the world puzzled everyone because Russia was known to be a devoutly Christian nation. However, communication wasn't as instantaneous then as it is today. It would often take months for news to spread about world events. What no one could have known when Our Lady told about Russian heirs being spread throughout the world was that at that very moment the Bolshevik Revolution was taking place, which gave us Lenin and his new communist state. Of course, we know Russia did indeed spread the heirs of communism around the globe, just as Our Lady had predicted. There were several other messages Our Lady gave us that were of global significance, all of which continue to be warnings to us today, but we lack the time to cover them here. Instead, we'll move on to the miracle of the sun, the great miracle granted so that all will believe. It was October 13, 1917. Despite that it had been raining nonstop for three days, 70,000 pilgrims trudged through the mud and foul weather to be present for the miracle. Shortly after the children arrived at the Kova, Our Lady appeared to them with her final message. When she finished, Our Lady pointed to the sky as the clouds parted. The children looked to the sun and Lucia pointed and shouted, Look! What the children saw was altogether different from what the 70,000 onlookers observed. The children saw several apparitions in the disk of the sun. Mary as Our Lady of Mount Karma holding her son, Our Lord exposing his sacred heart, the two hearts, and St. Joseph holding the Christ child. But what the other people saw did much more to drive home Our Lady's warning. At first, the sun began to spin. As it spun, the sun threw off every color of the spectrum. 
Then it began to dance across the sky while spinning and tossing off the colors. The people were in awe of what they saw. Then things became frightening. As the 70,000 observers looked on in terror, the sun began to plummet to earth. People began to scream and run, many shouting out their sins as they saw impending death hurling at them from the sky. All present were convinced the world was about to end, and many of them were far from prepared. Judgment had come. Then, as suddenly as it began, the sun returned to its place in the sky, motionless. The people cried out in relief and thanksgiving. As they began to collect themselves from the horror they had just experienced, that's when they realized yet another miracle had occurred. Despite that it had rained continuously for three days, the ground was perfectly dry. In addition to that, there was no longer mud on anyone's clothing or shoes. It would be easy for us to scoff and say these people were the victims of mass hysteria, except for the several proofs of what happened that can't be explained away. Portugal at the time was governed by an oppressive communist regime. Reporters from the weekly Lisbon communist newspaper O Secolo were present for the miracle and reported it in the next issue, exactly as it happened. The government forced the newspaper to write a retraction the following week, but copies of that original newspaper are available today from the World Apostolate of Fatima. There was also a government observatory 40 miles away from Fatima that recorded the miracle of the sun as it was observed by scientists there. So there's scientific proof of the miracle as well. While the miracle was taking place in Fatima, Pope Benedict XV was also granted a vision of the miracle of the sun in the Vatican. All of this tells us Our Lady's messages at Fatima were of the utmost importance, and they continue to be important to us today. Unfortunately, the cynicism of an atheistic world has obscured her message and left us all in grave danger. I would urge everyone to read the captivating book by William Thomas Walsh titled Our Lady of Fatima. As the best supplement to that short book, I'd recommend a documentary narrated by Ricardo Montalban simply titled Fatima, which is available from Ignatius Press. The documentary includes expert commentary by Malcolm Muggeridge, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, historian James Hitchcock of St. Louis University, and Warren Carroll of Christendom College. The reason I decided to tell you about Our Lady of Fatima is, so many people today are what have been called apparition chasers. They chase after any purported apparition, thinking it's the latest message from heaven, but most of them turn out to be either tricks of the devil or scams run by unscrupulous people. This is a practice that's dangerous to everyone's faith, and it should be wholeheartedly discouraged. There are already many legitimate apparitions that have the weight of full approval from the church. Among them are Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady of Lourdes, Our Lady of Akita, the Virgin of the Poor, and the personal revelations of Our Lord as the Divine Mercy to St. Faustina. And these contain all we need to bolster our faith and lead us to the practice of our faith in a way that will get us to heaven. It's okay to learn about those apparitions that don't yet enjoy church approval, but we should be very cautious. Failure to be cautious can lead us to be disobedient to the church, such as is the case of Medjugorje, where formal pilgrimages have been forbidden by the church for over 20 years, and the Franciscans there have blatantly disobeyed the church in welcoming pilgrimages and promoting the events at Medjugorje. Anything that promotes such dissent from the church as a rule of thumb should be considered as never from heaven. If you're taking any prescription medication to control diabetes, or even pre-diabetes, new studies from Italy and New Zealand show that type 2 diabetes and pre-diabetes can be managed or possibly even reversed if you know how. 
While most medications can keep the symptoms of diabetes at bay, they don't actually treat the root cause of the problem. So before you resign yourself to being hooked on medication for life, you've got to see a video about Glucofort. The link is in my show notes. I've been taking Glucofort for two months and it's had a dramatic effect on my blood sugar number. My primary care physician is amazed. So do what I did. Watch the video, then order the package of all-natural Glucofort that's right for you by clicking the Glucofort link in my show notes. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from G.K. Chesterton. He said, Each generation is converted by the saint who contradicts it the most. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. Famed astronomer Robert Kirshner had a scientist friend who didn't believe in God. While visiting Kirshner one day, this friend admired a model of the solar system that was displayed on a table. By turning a crank, the planets would orbit around the sun in their own path and at the exact proportion of movement. That's a nice model. Who made it? the scientist asked. Kirshner replied, oh, nobody. But tell me, I want to know who made it. I just told you, nobody made it. It made itself. The friend began to see the point and said, I see, you're trying to be funny. Isn't it you who are being funny, replied Kirshner. You can't believe that this little model made itself, but you can believe that the sun and moon and stars, the entire vast universe, somehow came into being without a maker. His friend thought about this for quite some time and eventually changed his mind. God never had a beginning. He always was. He'll never have an end. He's the highest being. God made all things. They didn't make themselves. He's almighty. Think of God as you look at the sky, the stars, the sun, trees, flowers, lakes, and all created things. If they're beautiful and wonderful, how beautiful and wonderful must the God be who made them? This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.